This morning's scripture reading comes from Psalm 78, verses 1 to 8. A masculine of Asaph, give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which commanded our fathers to teach their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they, set, they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will endure forever. Amen. Today I'll be wrapping up our brief series on gender and identity. Uh, if you missed the last two, uh, I would strongly urge you to go back and listen to them. Uh, even if you're part of youth, I encourage you to also listen to them as well. You know, given where our culture is, <clears throat> this topic is an extremely important one. And as Christians who are called to love and care for people, particularly those of the younger generations, we cannot choose to live with our heads stuck in the sand just because it's convenient to do so. Uh, during my last message, I spent some time highlighting feminine beauty and the significance of motherhood. And so today, I wanted to offer a specific challenge to our men as I call upon them to pursue a biblical vision of manhood or fatherhood. And not an easy message. If there's something that deeply offends you today, <clears throat> I'm going to be away for three months, okay? So <laughs> you, you may just have to wait if you want to talk to me about anything. I'm half kidding. Uh, if you really have a serious question or concern, feel free to reach out to me even during my sabbatical, okay? Uh, Here's the simple outline for today, okay, part one, uh, I wanted to briefly talk about this dark cultural moment we're living in, okay? Part two, I want to make sure you understand why men matter, okay? Talked about why women are so important last time. I want to talk about why specifically men are important, okay? And then lastly, you know, because men are flawed and ultimately not trustworthy, uh, I want to talk about the fact that our living hope is in not earthly men, but our earthly, our heavenly father, rather, our heavenly father and the work that he has accomplished through his son, our savior, Jesus Christ. So that'll be the message, but uh, part one, our dark cultural moment. Uh, 
Here's an upgrade from the 9 o'clock slide. 9 o'clock slide was black and white. This is a color one, I believe. Can we, can we show that? Got, got a color slide. Wow. Color makes such a big difference, okay? You don't have to, you don't have to like, see every detail. I'll, I'll just, I'm just going to explain what this is, okay? <clears throat> this is being handed out in a lot of public schools these days and probably in some private schools as well, but mostly a public school thing right now. It's called a gender unicorn, and essentially, teachers are handing this stuff out <clears throat> to young, impressionable students, encouraging, encouraging them to choose, uh, choose their, number one, gender identity, okay? Number two, their gender expression, right? And they're to consider their sex assigned at birth as distinct from their gender identity and gender expression. And not only that, you have also the categories of what you're physically attracted to, okay? So there's that, but then that's also separate from what you're emotionally attracted to. And, and they're encouraged to, I guess, form and shape their minds according to these categories, right? So gender identity is different from gender expression, so you can have a a completely different gender identity and express it in any way you want to, right? And you could be attracted to a guy but be, but be emotionally attracted to something else, right? And, and that's all fine and dandy. This is completely normal for you to be thinking along these lines is the basic teaching. And so this is given out to students as a way to indoctrinate them in regard to gender and sexual identity, et cetera, et cetera. And there's something terribly wrong with this way of thinking and feeling about oneself. I want to address specifically the youth members here, because I think, um, I'm, I'm hoping that you agree with me on this, but maybe you don't. I want you to understand that just because something is popular does not make it right. Amen? You understand that? Just because something is promoted as good doesn't mean necessarily that it's good or right. right? You always have to examine anything in life to the Word of God. I hope that's your posture. This everything is okay you know, where uh, everyone is doing it, so it must be okay mentality is a very foolish way to live. And as young students sort of navigating through life right now, I don't think you're too young to understand that we as God's people are called not to be like thermometers that quickly change according to our surroundings, right? Rather, we're to be like what? Not ther thermometers, but what? What's the other thing? Thermostat, right? Thermostat. We're to be like thermostats that are meant to regulate the temperature in the room. That, that's our calling. So I, I hope you can consider that and uh, live out your faith in such a way that would honor the Lord. Here's what one pastor in Philly recently wrote about <clears throat> uh, in regards to what's happening in the schools there. And I, I thought this was pretty eye-opening, and I think, um, I guess from what I'm perceiving, the schools in Philly tend to be a little more progressive uh, as compared to the schools in, in Northern Virginia. You can correct me if I'm wrong, for those of you who are teaching in the schools right now, but, but this is what 
this uh, Philly pastor in Philly said, calling kids by their dead names, in other words, names that they no longer have chosen to use, like their original names, is labeled deeply offensive and even abusive or traumatizing, right? And a teacher is now disciplined if a teacher chooses to say boys and girls in, in the Cheltenham School District, right? This is actually real. This is really happening. So they, can't even, they can't even say boys and girls, one teacher at a local school told me she overheard preteen students talking, which are you going to be? You know, which are you going to be? <clears throat> Speaking of these options, like they were shopping for clothes. So it's been completely normalized in their minds. This is not weird anymore for anybody. It's completely normal to think of these categories. And one public school mom I know has, this is what the pastor said, has had her young daughter move from lesbian to trans, and she doesn't know what to do. She's at a loss. She's crying out for help. And this is why Abigail Schreier wrote this particular book, because she, she noticed how, how badly things have turned in our culture. She realized that evil people are teaching evil things, and as a result, children are being irreparably damaged. Or her words are irreversibly Damage because literally kids are encouraged to mutilate themselves right, just, just so that they can maintain their identity, whatever they choose right, to categorize themselves as. So is, is this kind of thing happening in Virginia schools as well? I wonder. Please let me know. Let, let others know. Because if this is the case, and maybe it's not happening just yet, but if it does ever happen, if it ever gets this bad, I, I, I seriously think that we only have two options, right? The first option is for you to organize with other parents and to strongly push back against this wickedness, right? Option two is for you to make plans I know this, this can't happen right away, but if things don't get any better, is my point, is for you to make plans to remove your child or your children from a system that is specifically designed to radicalize them. A few of you asked me if our church would be willing to start a school of our own. Okay? Now, if we did start something, we'd have to start with preschool and see if we could grow from there. I have no concrete plan to start a school right now, but it was once a dream. <laughs> it was once a dream, and uh, who knows? If any of you would be interested in helping us establish a preschool, please let me know, right? Maybe it's something we should pray about. Let me offer you a, a few theological insights that I think will help you understand why I think this is such an urgent matter, okay? Number one, this effort to redefine gender is a more depraved form of rebellion against God. It's not just a common sin. This is a, a more serious form of sin. It's a more serious form of rebellion against God. Right? Let me put it this way. Think about it in these terms. 
rejecting God's special revelation, right, which is God's holy revealed word. Okay, that's what we call God's special revelation, you know. Rejecting God's word is actually expected of sinners. It, it doesn't surprise any of us that sinners would reject God's revealed word, his special revelation. However, when sinners begin to reject what's sometimes called God's general revelation, right, which is things that you're supposed to just naturally catch through creation and nature and how, how, how our biological bodies are, you know, like men have this kind of sex organ and women have these kinds of organs and again, you, kind of, you kind of naturally see how things are meant to fit and how marriage is supposed to work and how, how procreation works and how, how the world's supposed to become filled with people. Once people start even rejecting those very commonsensical things, that points to a greater rebellion and a possible curse from God, according to Romans chapter 1. And so we are in a very dark place in our culture right now because people are not only rejecting what is meant to be so plain, like gender and sexuality and such, but they're celebrating these deviant things that they've conjured up in their minds. It's being celebrated and endorsed as good. And that's exactly what Romans 1 warns us of. Secondly, I want to make it clear that sanctification, you know, growing in Christ, is not meant to be a gender-neutral gender project. We are called to be sanctified as male and female, whatever God assigns you to be. In other words, we're, we're called to mature as men and as women. And one thing you should never be asked to do is choose your own gender. That is such a, a wicked practice. I mean, that's no different from being told to basically slap God in the face or give God the middle finger. It's a direct assault against God's very clear purpose and design for one's life. I quote from this book. I want you to consider these words from page 19. When God assigned a place, a station to someone, it is disobedience to desert that station. See, a woman is no coward for refusing to desert her children in order to enlist in the army to go off and fight in a war. See, a woman is a godly woman if she says, no, I'm not going to go fight in a war. I have a child or I have children to protect and nurture at home. That's, that's a godly thing for a woman to say and do. See, but a man who refuses to fight can be charged, depending on the circumstances, with cowardice. It's different for men, because men are different from women. And this same pattern can be seen in all the little things of life. See, a man is not supposed to stand around when it is important to exercise leadership. See, a woman might be called to simply wait for her husband to make a decision. That's a godly thing for her to do. But a man 
who waits around for someone to decide is abdicating his assigned role. Men and women are different. Our sanctification is meant to look different. The way we grow in Christ and mature is meant to be different, you see. That's my point. It's not gender neutral. So men, whether young or old, yes, I was pointing to you, Joel. (laughs) Young or old. This is a time for you, my fellow men, to show courage, to take a clear moral stand and to lead your families and church through this chaos we're living in. We should all aspire as men to be like the men of Issachar of old, who had an understanding of the times and knew what Israel ought to do. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. They had wisdom. They had foresight. We should aspire to be like them, that we would know what to do as God's people living in such chaotic times. Part two, why men matter. Men matter because in educating children, special responsibility is placed on the fathers of our families. The New Testament puts it this way. Children, obey your parents and then pay attention. It says, fathers, fathers. It doesn't say mothers. It's not because mothers are not important. It's not because mothers have no role. It says fathers because, see, God was the one who came down to the garden in Genesis 1. Who did he call first? Or was it Genesis It was Genesis 1, 2, and 3, okay? He he came down and he called upon Adam and said, Adam, where are you? He didn't say Eve. He said Adam. He he sought the man first, not because Eve was off the hook completely. It was because Adam was meant to be the one given the special responsibility to oversee his family. In the same way, God calls fathers Do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. This responsibility is given primarily to fathers to oversee. See, when it comes to our children, God, he's not complicated. He basically gives us one thing to do. Just one thing. Gives us one job. Instruct your children in the Lord. It's one thing people. So if you're not instructing your children the Lord, you're basically refusing to obey that one thing that God is asking you to do as a father. You know, I've been in ministry long enough to have seen with my own eyes over and over again what the Bible says about fatherhood is absolutely true. You know, the father's influence over their children is huge. If you show me a spiritually apathetic teenager, it's almost always the case that you will find a spiritually apathetic father in the home. And if you show me a spiritually awakened teenager, more often than not, I know there are exceptions, more often than not, the father is doing something intentional. He's actually leading spiritually. 
Several years ago, there was an interesting study that came out of Switzerland about the connection between the church-going habits of fathers and mothers and the effect on their children when they are grown, okay? We're not talking about when they're young and, you know, being dragged out to church with their parents. I'm talking about when they get older, right, what they choose to do later on in life. And so here's a summary. In short, if a father does not go to church, no matter how faithful his wife's devotions, only one child in 50 will become a regular worshiper. And if a father does go regularly, regardless of the practice of the mother, between two-thirds and three-quarters of their children will become churchgoers. If a father goes, but he goes irregularly, regardless of his wife's devotion, between a half and two-thirds of their offspring will find themselves coming to church regularly, or at least occasionally. A non-practicing mother with a regular father, will see a minimum of two-thirds of her children ending up at church. In contrast, pay attention, a non-practicing father with a regular mother will see two-thirds of his children never darken the church door. And if they're both negligent, that figure rises to 80%. And so the conclusion is this. A mother's role will always remain primary in terms of intimacy, initial care, and early nurture, right? No father can replace that relationship. We talked about that last time. However, it is equally true that when a child begins to move into that period of getting out of the home and entering into the world, he or she looks increasingly to the father to be the role model. That's what this summary concludes. Okay, and I want to say one thing. For, for those of you who are in households or in a relationship where the father is completely absent, don't despair. Right? Trust in the Lord. Cry out to him for help. There are cases where God offers special grace and mercy right, to those who may, you know, not meet, like, who, who are supposed to be, like, in the, in the worst possible statistical category, but God can show grace. There are families who have absent fathers, but still you see their kids and they are devoted, right? So God can break through and, and uh, perform miracles like that. But let me strengthen the argument of the importance of fathers by saying what you should all know already, but what our, what our culture just does not like to, to mention, and it's this. Fatherless homes are the main causes of poverty and of brokenness and of injustice. Fatherlessness is one of the main causes of these things. This is not only true in black communities, but it's true in every community. Fatherlessness, it creates so many problems. When a community celebrates morality and ethics that essentially undermine marriage by creating gender confusion and sexual chaos, encouraging the mass killing of the unborn, that is a recipe for greater injustice and brokenness in society. And I tell you, all these things are the results of 
fatherlessness. It's when men decide to be passive and choose to be absent in their relationships. See, as you should know, there's a lot of talk about abortion these days due to the leaked Supreme Court document, which indicates that Roe v. Wade will be overturned soon. But when I think about the unjust killing of children, it may surprise you, but I don't, I don't first think about the mother and her child, okay? I first think about the father and his sin and his cowardliness and his lack of fatherly vision and his complete failure to take responsibility of his own child and of his lover. See, such men, they just want sexual pleasure without any of the covenantal responsibilities that sex was designed for. It's an example of, of a man refusing to act as a responsible father, and, and that is what contributes, I tell you, to the problems of our society. When we men fail to act like men and abandon our stations in life out of fear or selfishness, Because of our sin, the generations that follow are harmed. That's why any movement that seeks to destroy the traditional categories of family and gender and sexuality while screaming about justice, as we've seen and continue to see in our day, they are gross deviations from the truth. I notice how so many people, the secularists particularly of our day, they never want to even mention fatherlessness as they scream about justice, right? They, they cry out for justice while they glorify sexual ethics that essentially destroy the family and kill the unborn. And that's why I've been telling you the past two, three years, that such conceptions of justice are wrong and misguided. Just because people cry out social justice doesn't make it just, right? Don't be deceived. So many people are misguided in our day. What they cry out as justice oftentimes leads to greater injustice. Abigail Schreier, toward the end of her book, I shared a little bit last time, she mentions a few practical steps that we could all take as parents. And I want to share a few because I think they're really worth considering. Um, first thing she says, and this, this is the first thing she mentions, do not give your kid a smartphone. And she writes, parents will balk, parents will groan. Most consider this an unimaginable amputation. But in terms of obviousness, this one's not even hard. Nearly every novel problem teenagers face traces itself back to 2007 and the introduction of Steve Jobs' iPhone. In fact, the explosion in self-harm can be so precisely 
pinpointed to the introduction of this one device that researchers have little, little doubt that it's the case. And I'm not saying that you should never give your teenager a smartphone, but you should do whatever you can to delay that process. Right? It's because they have so much access to such destructive ideologies, influences online, that it sways them, it seduces them to choose evil over good. Secondly, it says, she says, don't relinquish your authority as the parent. You are the parent for a reason. Do not be afraid to push back. Your adolescent can handle it. You don't have to go along with everything she comes up with, even claims about her sexuality or identity. Thirdly, do not support gender ideology in your child's education. Okay, it's kind of what I echoed earlier. Don't just go along with it. Your option should never be to remain idle. She writes, my best friend attended a posh all-girls school in Washington, D.C., and each year they would have an assembly of eating disorders. For the few girls who were already dabbling with anorexia, it may have brought some comfort to them, but for the rest of the class, she has often told me, it functioned as an instructional seminar on how to be anorexic, which contributed to the spread of such a practice. The intention was good, right? But her point is, this holds true for gender ideology and the teaching that is offered. So you throw a gender unicorn document to young teenagers, guess what? They're going to eat that up, right? It, it spreads like wildfire. It's contagious. Fourthly, reintroduce privacy into the home. And, and by this, she, she's not referring to, like, you know, put filters on your internet. I mean, I'm sure she wouldn't be against that. But in this context, she, what she means is that please quit the habit of sharing every part of your lives and your children's li lives on the internet. Right? Stop advertising. Stop announcing all these, you know, monumental moments in their lives. Because once you announce something, she argues, on social media... It becomes something that cannot easily be taken back. It, it really forms their identity. It's hard to reshape that once it becomes public. And so she cautions parents from doing that, from engaging in that practice. So fathers, what are we to do? I'm calling upon you to consider these things primarily. How, how will you govern your family and your children. Let me shift our focus a bit and talk about just briefly how, what, what difference men are to make in the life of the church. So we talked about the family a little bit, now let's talk about the church, okay, just for a moment. And I wanna say that we as men, we need to continue to lead visibly in the church. And that's a good thing. Uh, I'm sure many of you noticed, but there's something different about Cornerstone, right? I, I often hear such comments, you know, like, why are there so many men in your ministry? Why are there so many men in your church? Because when I go to the other church over there, you know, whatever that church is, it's female dominant. But I come here, and there's sort of a, 
a male dominance. It's a different ethos. There's a reason for that. There's a reason for that. Quoting from this book one more time, page 94. Think through this with me. He writes, masculine worship does not exclude women in the same way that feminine worship excludes men. I'll expound on it a little bit, okay? But just bear with me. Women flourish when men take spiritual responsibility. Men wither or stay away when women lead in the church. Now, that, that may sound controversial, but it shouldn't be. Right? Basically, he's saying this. And, and by the way, this is not just true for church. It's true for any organization. When women lead, okay, let's, let's say in the church, maybe you have a female pastor or a set of female elders, okay? Um, men look at that, okay, and they're, of course, if they're godly, they will test that against Scripture and say, well, God's Word says that uh, women are not to have authority over men, so I guess I cannot continue, continue church life here, and so they look elsewhere. And so the, the godly men, the strong men, gradually end up leaving and going elsewhere, all right? Female leadership in such a way, right, it, it discourages strong men from staying, but at the same time, it attracts effeminate men who have no problem with women leading them, right? And these are effeminate and normally ungodly men, right, immature men. And so you have that kind of church established, right? That's, that's why they have such an ethos or feel to, to them. On the other hand, you have a church that is committed to biblical teaching where we don't compromise on these things. And so you have a more sort of masculine feel overall, but that's not a bad thing. See, masculine worship, the writer continues, is not worship for men. It is worship in which men fulfill their responsibilities to others. As a result of masculine leadership, women and children are free to contribute to the worship in the right way. But they do so because men have taken responsibility. And so in a scriptural worship service, both masculine and feminine elements will be present, but the masculine will be dominant because men are called to lead. When the feminine element leads or dominates, the result is that those men who are masculine are encouraged to stay away. I wholeheartedly agree with what he writes here. Right? And part, I share this in part because this is meant to explain also why we are the way we are at Cornerstone. Right? Men, fathers, we are called to visibly lead the church for the sake of the health of the church. I also want to say, just reflecting on our passage today, Psalm 78, uh, the, the psalm, it really is meant to give us a vision for how we're to think about the future generations. Right? It's meant to encourage our fathers especially to to 
have, have, a, have a, a picture of what their ministry to their family ought to look like in the long run and how that's meant to impact not just their own children but their children and their children after them. Right? Notice in verse 5 and 6, let me read that again. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, okay? Why? That the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So there are multiple generations in, in view here that has to be part of your fatherly vision as you govern your own families. See, my, my grandfather on my dad's side, he was actually an, an adulterer and an unbeliever. He was a very ungodly man. And thanks be to God, my father was the first one in his lineage to become a Christian. And one of, one of his greatest God-given responsibilities was to make sure that the gospel was transferred not just to me, but to my children's generation and to the generation after them. That, that's what his burden was. That's the kind of vision he had for the future. And so I've adopted that mindset as well. One of, my, one of the primary reasons why I'm called, therefore, to train up my own children in the faith is so that they too may raise up godly children. I remember once speaking to a friend who lived in an area where they had a school that offered a Mandarin immersion program for grade schoolers. It's amazing. And there were a lot of families that were interested in this program, and so they had to create a lottery system to choose who would get in. It was very competitive. And, and my friend is, is Korean with no real connection to the Chinese culture other than the fact that he probably likes Chinese food, you know? So I asked him, why in the world... Would you want your kid to be in a Mandarin, like a Chinese immersion program when it's hard enough to teach them Korean, right? Don't you know that they're going to be, become more Chinese and Korean if you do this? And I thought his answer would be something like, well, you know, you know if you speak Chinese well enough, it's going to be much easier for them to get a job and, and do better, you know, in, in building a career. I thought that would be his answer, but no. His answer surprised me because he said, well, Paul, as you know, the Chinese population is huge, and God is doing something incredible in the underground Chinese church right now. And once my daughter grows up, I'm praying that God would give her a heart for China so that she could reach as many Chinese people for the Lord. That's why I want her to be perfectly fluent in Chinese. And I was like, okay, you know, we're on different, we're on completely different wavelengths here, right? You are a more godly man than I am, you know? But that is an example of having a vision, having a fatherly vision for the future generations. I encourage you to think in such a way. Part three, living with hope in our Heavenly Father and in the work of our Savior. Uh, and I wanted to spend some time <clears throat> here because I know that many of us struggle with these feelings of inadequacy. You know, I know several of you who, who never grew up with a good 
role model in your family. Uh, maybe your father was actually very abusive, and he did more harm than good, and because of your broken experience, there's a strong this feeling of inadequacy. You know, in the back of your mind, you're always wondering, am I good enough? Uh, do I have what it takes to be a good father to my children, you know? And, you know, when, when, I, when I see such people, and you know this, we, we often say, okay, that person has daddy issues. You know, that person has daddy issues. But I tell you, after engaging with many people like that, this is what I learned. Um, there are many men who remain stuck and they're not able to be good fathers to their children because of this lack of confidence and sense of insecurity. Like, am I good enough? Do I have what it takes? Like when I never was able to learn from anybody growing up. And so many men, they fail to become good and faithful fathers because they, they're stuck in that rut. They can't see beyond that. On the other hand, See, the ones who are able to overcome their so-called daddy issues are the ones who have learned, by God's grace, to look beyond their flawed earthly fathers and their own personal inadequacies and to look to what they know will never fail, which is their heavenly father, and the work that he has accomplished through his son, Jesus Christ. There has to be that transformation and reorientation of mind and heart, you see, for you to overcome the obstacle, for you to, to, to overcome that, that mental block. It's those who look to the father and son, they are the ones who are able to say, see, though I may not be good enough, his grace is sufficient in my weakness. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And they're okay. They're, they're, see, they're, this, this, this should seem so obvious to, to us, but it's not for some reason. It, it should be completely fine for you to say, yeah, I'm not good enough. I am inadequate. See, but you can't stay there. Right? The gospel points us to the one who is adequate, you see. And, and that's the person who is meant to give us the strength and confidence we need to go forth and fulfill our God-given responsibilities. Parents, God does not expect any of us to be perfect in our parenting. There is no such thing. Now, we can never be flawless, but we can be faithful. We can be faithful. We can be parents who trust in God more than we trust in our own intuition. We can be parents who do not presume to know better than God. And we can be parents who humbly obey what God requires of us. That's faithfulness. Let me say a word to those who may be living through some marital strife, okay? And you don't have to be ashamed of it. Uh, Joyce and I have been married for a long time now, and, and we've had our fair share of, of difficulties, right? It happens. It's part of being married, right? Uh, but let me say this. Husbands, just because you have fallen into an unhealthy pattern of abdicating your role as a husband and father for some time now, you know, perhaps it was COVID, 
but I also want to caution you not to blame everything on COVID, okay? But if you're in that rut, okay, it doesn't mean that you should continue living out such a pattern. I'm hoping that God speaks to you through this message and inspires you to have a vision, a healthier vision. And if you have a vision one day, hopefully soon, sooner than later, if you have a vision of what you believe fatherhood should look like in your home, please share that with your wife and gradually work toward making some real changes that reflect your fatherly vision. That's important. That's going to be important not just for you but for your family and for your wife. That's how you show leadership. And wives, please do not make it difficult for your husbands. If you notice your husband making an effort to lead the family in such a way, no matter how feeble the attempt may seem to you, please do not disparage him with your words or subtle behavior. But do your very best to encourage him gently so that he could be the husband and father God has called him to be. It's going to be very difficult for you to break old patterns that both of you have grown accustomed to over the years. But if both of you truly want to grow as men and women, as husbands and wives and as fathers and mothers, you must learn to break old patterns and form new and healthier ones as you both humble yourselves before God. So, brothers and sisters, as I see this world become a crazier place to live, my hope and prayer is that God would preserve us as his people. Yes, I do hope that God would perform a miracle and, and you know, create a revival, a spiritual revival in our land. But then that may or may not happen, and that, that's not my ultimate hope. Right? God doesn't promise that these things will happen, but he, he does promise that his kingdom will prevail in the end, you see. And so my prayer, ultimately, my hope is that God would preserve us as his people by giving us the clarity of mind and the courage of heart that we need to remain faithful to him no matter how much pressure we feel to conform to the patterns of this world around us. That God's kingdom would remain in our hearts, that we would not rebel against his holy word, and that our church and our ministry would remain centered upon him as we navigate together through this chaos. And so may the Lord be gracious to us all. Let me pray. Dear Father, it is in our nature to revolt against you, and one way we do so is by rejecting and reversing your creation order as it relates to our gender and sexuality, and in the process we sin and we lead others astray from you. So Lord, forgive me and forgive our men for abdicating our God-given responsibilities to lead and to love and to protect, to provide for those you've entrusted to us. 
Instead of acting courageously and with moral clarity, we have often acted as cowards, giving into our fears. So we thank you that though we are weak, we can be strong in Christ. And though, we, though we fail often, we know that we can look to the one who never fails. We thank you that we can place our trust and hope in the one who did not abdicate his responsibilities, but who bore the cross for our sake so that we could freely exhibit godly masculinity, which you have ordained and which pleases you. Help us to be such men and help our women to be equally committed to the work of encouraging our young boys and men to be godly for the sake of your honor and glory and for the sake of human flourishing in our church, our local communities, our country, and our world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This time, uh, Pastor Sam is going to...